week on page 180 it's a big week for me as the philadelphia eagles are in the super bowl well paul david kemp is back to discuss what you need to know going in and yes we'll also be discussing rihanna too we'll also be breaking down the last episode of the last of us plus reviews of the whale knock at the cabin saint omer and pamela a love story all that and more still to come Welcome again, guys, to another edition of Page 180. And this isn't a gaming podcast, I swear. I know we talk about it sometimes with the the likes of The Last of Us, but that's more for reference. Uh, But I do want to bring up a video game as a reference to what I think is something more universal. Uh, Because this weekend, I'm taking a few days off work because I'm going to play the new Wizarding World game called Hogwarts Legacy. Uh, this is a game with a lot of hype around it and looks to follow the trend of the likes of Marvel Spider-Man and Star, War- Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order and finally giving fans uh, of the franchise an excellent signature opportunity to play in the world that they grew up loving. But obviously being a Wizarding World property, unfortunately the purchasing of the game on my part alone is a bit of a controversial decision these days as obviously it's going to continue to fill the coffers of a JK Rowling who's doing herself absolutely no favours with her incessant tweeting of anti-trans sentiment. And this is something I think all of us have had to deal with from people that make content that we love in one way or another as Hollywood and indeed the world at large has had a bit of a moral reckoning and the lines have been drawn about behavior that many would have gotten away with previously. And we've all had to kind of ask ourselves, can you still love art even if the artists who created it turn out to be an absolute dickhead? It's something that I've wrestled with considerably, particularly when it comes to Rowling and the Harry Potter series. It's something that I've also looked for guidance on and leadership from uh, for people that I admire. And to tell the truth, in that field, I've been left a little bit lacking because there's been times where I don't know what I think and I want someone to be able to kind of make that make sense for me. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to try talk through my own feelings openly and honestly. What I'd like to do is kickstart or continue a real conversation that I think needs to be had somewhat and by the way this is a very first draft stage of 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 kind of how i'm feeling i'm very open to the fact that i may feel completely differently down the line so please by all means make it a back and forth conversation if you feel that i've got some things wrong or if you feel i need more education on certain subjects i'm very open to kind of feedback here like i said i'm i'm looking for leadership myself on this like many who enjoyed these stories and i'm sure many of you listening now did I didn't have the easiest childhood. I'm not going to sob about it here. I'm not going to get into details, but my love of the likes of fantasy stories like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and even my love of the likes of pro wrestling on top of that were born out of a need to kind of escape the harshness of the real world at times. And the joy that I got out of living in these alternate worlds. The Harry Potter books in particular came along for me at the perfect time. I grew up pretty much in sync with the likes of Harry and Ron and Hermione as the books were released. The similar things were kind of happening to me, but not obviously <laughs> big giants coming into cabins telling me I was a wizard, but like similar kind of touch points that happened throughout the course of the life. And when I was young, the content was kind of light and fluffy with generally positive messages, which kind of was appropriate for me. But as it got a bit darker and more adult in tone, I was growing up to be able to appreciate that. And like pop culture does, particularly at this stage, it helped shape my understanding of the world 
in the way that I think was for the better. I think there was times where a couple of choices I could have made would have led me down some dark paths. And I think having the likes of Harry Potter there as an anchor steered me back towards the light. When my little sister was a child, for example, I read to her until she was old enough to be able to read the books back to me and seeing the new movies on the day that they were released right up until I bawled my eyes out during the entire second half of Deadly Hallows Part 2 as much uh, because I knew this phase of my relationship with her was coming to an end as what was happening on the movie itself. These are all some of the most special moments of my life. And I think you can probably tell that these stories meant a lot to me and it's why it's difficult for me to just be able to give them up. But then we kind of fast forward to the present day and my support of trans people, it's not superficial. It's not something that I'm constantly like being loud about on social media for likes or for clout. It's not something I even speak about that much a lot because I know there are plenty of people who can say how I feel on the subject much better, much more educated on the topic and much more credibly than I can. I'll put my hands up and say that when I was younger and this topic was new to me, like a lot of people, I don't think I was ever cruel or lacked compassion. But, well, I probably was a bit ignorant towards everything in the trans experience because I, like many, just couldn't relate to it or understand it. But then I kind of started to open up my eyes. I worked in Ann Summers for a few years as a security guard and it was there I started to have more daily interactions and really began to understand the humanity behind what trans people had to deal with. I heard the cruel jokes and slurs that they had to deal with. I, I saw the judgment that they had to contend with every day just to step outside their door and be themselves. That all of us just kind of take for granted and don't have to deal with it. And the only word I could think of for seeing them have to deal with all this was respect. Whether you understand what someone is feeling or not, how do you not respect someone who feels so strongly in their convictions that they willfully put up with what trans people have and uh, indeed still have to uh, until today? And as time went on, I've kind of, you know, had work colleagues that were trans, I now have trans friends. I even have trans relatives who I love and support unconditionally. So with all that in mind, it's fucking frustrating to open up Twitter and see someone who created something that has meant so much to me that I want to continue to hold close to my heart, deliberately antagonizing these trans people for apparently no fucking reason. When this first began, I read her initial essay on why she held this stance. And truth be told, I, I didn't think she was a monster at the time. She just seemed to me like someone that had taken a bit of a left turn with her views because she decided to equivocate them to something that was extremely personal to her and maybe just needed a bit of education to understand that her viewpoints weren't actually threatened by how trans people choose to identify themselves. And then... She got criticized. That didn't work. She went full Graham Linehan and then she doubled down. And I read a great article before in the New York Times that described what the likes of herself, Kanye West and Elon Musk have gone through as Twitter poisoning. But regardless of the cause, I don't want to make excuses for these people. I've now lost count of the amount of times that I've logged onto Twitter and just looked at it and said, for fuck's sake, seeing her deliberately antagonize trans people with her latest line of thinking being equivocating them to rapists constantly because that's a constructive way to spend your time there's a loud push though among people to kind of boycott all things wizarding world and i get it and i think that's also a fair decision if someone wants to make that individual decision but in trying to weigh up how i felt and how i wanted to respond to it i've got a few issues with it from a personal standpoint i'm not saying anyone else who doesn't feel this way is wrong first off it's not something we do across the board 
So we'll celebrate Star Wars despite George Lucas literally putting racist, stereotypical characters in the movies. Everyone is going to see Ant-Man next week in the cinemas, but they'd probably be shocked if they read up on Hank Pym's problematic past comic book storylines. These are examples of scummy biases of creators being so prevalent that they actually permeated into the fictional worlds that they created, which is something that actually hasn't happened in the wizarding world yet, at least. But there's no guilt in consuming either of these franchises, so it's not a measure that we actually apply across the board. We're still good to follow Star Wars and Marvel, but with Harry Potter, we have to kind of have a, a, a different standard. So what's really different here between those and that? Well, in this case, it's J.K. Rowling. She's being loud about this. She's confronting us constantly with this unpleasant side of her personality. Essentially, what she's doing is she's actively spreading hate. But when you boil it down to, you know, why we feel this way, it's she's annoying us. She's aggravating us. She's antagonizing us constantly. But then if you try, and I'm not going to ask you to do this too much, but if you look at it from her side, whether she's right or wrong, she feels that what she's doing is justified. So essentially what we're saying is if we say we need to banish people who do this is we need to say that we should stop consuming someone's content and attempt to curtail their income because our idealized worldview trumps their right to express their idealized worldview. And for me, even if someone's idealized worldview is something that I find absolutely abhorrent and for the record, I very much do in this case, Something about that response makes me feel a little bit icky because that's not who I want to be or that's not how I'd want the world to be towards me if I ever found myself to be a bit ignorant and stupid towards a topic just because I was getting older and the world was becoming a bit more confusing and scary to me. And lastly, I think the reason that I kind of have an issue with it is let's look at the end result of the approach of a boycott. That's that basically if this approach has its way, the stories of Harry Potter eventually fade away forever. And that's definitely not what I want either. If I have kids, I want to I want to share this with them. I want to do what I did with my little sister and, and have that same relationship with them. I want myself to see Dumbledore and Grindelwald's duel. I know the Fantastic Beast movies aren't great, but I do want to see that duel happen. I want to see how other creators who grew up like me consuming these put their own spin on the stories and evolve them in the same way that has happened in the likes of Star Wars today. And we get the likes of The Mandalorian and Andor and Rebels and Clone Wars as a result of it. I want to I want to play this game. I want to play this game that's coming out. And I want to spend a few weeks of my life hanging around Hogwarts, Expelliarmus and the shit out of people. I want to see a new HBO show with a Wizarding World equivalent of Dave Filoni put a modern spin on things. I want I want a badass trans witch or wizard, for example, with proper representation in this world, showing that we're truly in a new era, but we can still have this world that J.K. Rowling has created. I don't want to necessarily support J.K. Rowling or give her any more money than I already have, but I do kind of want to see Warner Brothers write her a big fuck-off check so that she will let's just call it spade a spade, fuck off and give someone else a time at the wheel. A boycott doesn't necessarily achieve that. If the content is shit, then fine, okay, of course. You don't have to spend money on content you don't want to consume, and that's okay. And the Fantastic Beasts dying a death, for example, uh, is a more compelling case to remove J.K. Rowling from the wheel than anything else that's happening now. But we need to show that where we can, that there is still an appetite for this content and for this world, just not maybe not content made by J.K. Rowling. And I think the game is a chance to show that. And 
I'm not saying that me buying this is some kind of moral crusade to show solidarity with the trans community. It's not. I'm going to be clear with that. I'm buying it because I want to buy it. And that's it. And it's not like I'm not going to make that into a gesture just to kind of soothe my own guilt. But buying it is also not me saying that I don't care because I do. And I think there's a way to get the best of both worlds in a much similar way that a lot of people had to wrestle with when the World Cup was in Qatar. And we disagreed with the political kind of side of what happened in Qatar, but also we still want to watch a World Cup. I think the way to deal with this is consume the games, the books, the movies, consume what you want. We also use the opportunity to make noise about the fact that you don't see what she's saying as acceptable and you want better. Same way we did with Qatar and the World Cup. Make noise constantly and loudly about this is not good enough. Improve, improve, improve. She's not going to be safe. She's not going to hear it. She's gone too deep and she's not coming back. She's not going to turn around and say, I got it wrong. Here's how I really feel now. But if enough people make enough noise, then maybe Warner Brothers Discovery might hear, maybe they write, might write that big fuck off check and we'll get the best of all worlds because she's not the only one who has to have a say here. Anyway, let's get on with some reviews. Thanks for listening to my TED Talk. Let's talk about the new releases that are in the cinema this week. à la cour vos noms et prénoms, votre date et votre lieu de naissance, ainsi que les noms et prénoms de vos parents. Je m'appelle Laurence Colli. Je suis née le 15 mars 1980 à Dakar, au Sénégal. Mon père s'appelle Robert Colli. Ma mère Odile Diata. Quelle est votre profession Étudiante. Santo Mare is Alice Job's French language movie that follows Rama, a novelist studying the Medea legend that speaks of mothers who kill their children, played by Kiiji Kegame, attending a trial of a mother, Lawrence Coley, played with both power and restraint by Guslaji Melanda, who's accused of murdering her daughter. It was also France's Oscar submission for Best International Feature in a year that was quite strong for French cinema, with Happening and Playground in particular coming to mind. The movie is based on Job's live-true story of attending and becoming obsessed with a similar trial, much as Rama does in recognising similar traits, thoughts and anxieties with the accused due to their shared Senegalese heritage and strained paternal relationships. Diop wasn't looking to make a movie about the experience. This is her first feature film, having migrated from the world of documentaries. And the end result is that the courtroom drama that feels almost documentary-like and has not ten- incredibly authentic performances from all involved. The end result of this almost naturally falling into place, incidentally, is a movie that feels incredibly real and also incredibly personal. And that's almost to its detriment at times, as the audience are asked to infer quite a lot while being spoon-fed almost nothing. Anyone who is familiar with my reviews knows I'm a big advocate of show, don't tell. But the reality is that Kagami gives her the best effort. But when you're telling a film that relies on you to be a Senegalese woman with difficult relationships with your parents that make you uncertain of your abilities to be a mother, else you may appear mad to everyone else, a bit of context wouldn't have gone amiss. It's quite possible that Diop wanted me to sit in the congregation, so I feel like the beleaguered judge and prosecution at times, but the experience in watching it is quite jarring. The film doesn't mind being almost monotonously procedural with the camera regularly lingering on characters for not only seconds, but dozens of seconds longer than is comfortable, and scenes such as the jury selection being dragged out interminably so you actually feel like you're there. 
if you're not confused or fully engaged at this stage, and I'll be honest, it did take me some time to settle into this movie. It's almost like Jop is rubbing your face in it a little bit. And for reference, the person sitting next to me in the cinema walked out about an hour in. That was never really on the cards for me. For what it's worth on balance, I think this is a quite good movie and an incredible closing statement from Coley Solicitor brings us together in a way that you feel like you're waiting forever for it to do so. I think this will be a movie that I think about constantly over the next few weeks and I go back to and appreciate more as time goes on. But I kind of also, when he made that decision, got his point at the time. It's a movie with a powerful message about motherhood, one that I feel is more universal than we may be comfortable with, and one that I'm not sure most filmmakers know exactly how to tackle yet. So I really admire Saint-Omer's attempt to do so. But for me, it just maybe kept its cards too close to its chest for too long to fully stick the landing. She wasn't trying to hurt him. She was trying to help him. Who are you talking about? He's going home. She did that. Charlie. She didn't do it to hurt him. She did it to send him home. Do you feel lightheaded, Charlie? Look at me. She's trying to help him. Who? Ellie. She was trying to help him. She just wanted to send him home. Do you ever get the feeling that people are incapable of not caring? A24's new release, The Well, marks a warm welcome back to Hollywood for Brendan Fraser. Fraser plays Charlie, an online lecturer, who insists his camera is broken, yet when we see him for the first time, realise that he's deliberately concealing his condition as he's grown morbidly obese. Charlie appears to be reaching a critical state upon her introduction, yet he refuses all help beside his home nurse, Liz, as we see him regularly binge eat when he's not apologising repeatedly for his existence. The movie takes place almost entirely inside Charlie's home, and as we see the pretty distressing adjustments that he has to live with. It's adapted for screen by Samuel D. Hunter, and once you see it, you won't be surprised to learn that it came from the stage. I feel like the excellent, albeit small, cast of The Whale, there are just seven credited actors, including Sadie Sink, Hong Chow, and Samantha Morton, who are all playing against type for the roles that at least I know them best for. They, I feel like they saw Brendan Fraser in the fat suit on day one, realised that given it was such a physical performance that the Academy would definitely be watching, and all put their acting boots on. This is an excellently acted movie. It was also nice to see Fraser back too, and in a challenging, demanding, physical and emotional role that allows him to truly flex his acting muscles acting muscles and remind us why there was a time where he was on the verge of taking over Tinseltown. There were suggestions by a lot of critics that this was a bit of a The Revenant by Leonardo DiCaprio performance and that it's deliberately physical in an attempt to get Oscars. I didn't really feel that way. I felt it was more just a statement of Fraser showing us what he could do in his talents as an actor and had no issue with it. So the acting is really good and it was nominated for two Oscars, whereas the actual film itself wasn't. And the reason for that, and I think that makes sense, is that the problem is that the thing the actors are acting in is absolute nonsense. Darren Aronofsky directs his film in his directorial follow-up to 2017's Mother. And like Mother, this is a movie that relies heavily on metaphor and allegory. Also similar to Mother, it's metaphor and allegory that the movie screams in your face. You see, this movie is called The Whale. And <laughs> you're probably not smart enough to understand this, but don't worry, Darren's going to explain it all to you because Brendan Fraser is a morbidly obese man, kind of like... A whale, you might say. In the movie, he reads an essay, which we assume is from one of his students that constantly repeats the line, it made me think about my own life. Because you see, Taryn wants you to see some of yourself 
in the choices that Charlie is making every day and you to think about your own life. The problem with the whale is that while there's a story worth telling here, the simple act of becoming and staying morbidly obese isn't exactly a compelling one to bring to screen. It relies a lot on internalized emotions and self-loading that while that can certainly be acted, you need a plot to inspire a character to do so. Otherwise, we're just watching him watch telly, eat pizza and slowly die. The plot we got tries to clumsily weave sexuality, religion, art and a strange family into it in a way that just felt like contrived drama ending in set pieces that didn't stick to landing at all. I felt bad in the cinema at one stage because there was a point towards the typical outlandish Aronofsky ending to the movie where you could tell they were really all going for it. They were bringing it all together, bursting out every last tear and every last wail that they could, bringing everything they could for the showreels to bring the curtain down with a bang. And I couldn't help but laugh out loud at one stage. It just happened. And maybe that was just me. The cast are immersed in their roles and what's demanded of them that I could see a lot of audience buying into what they're doing. And that's their right. If you enjoyed this and a lot of people I know that I respect and whose opinions that I respect did, then more power to you. But I'll be honest, I just wanted a pizza afterwards. Welcome back, Brendan Fraser. I've no doubt that you will get a dirt of scripts after this, and I can't wait to see them. I hope you get your award, but I hope that in future, now seeing you're back in Hollywood, I hope that it'll be a better experience for me as a viewer. As much pain as we can endure in our lives is kind of like the catalyst to all the great stuff, like poetry, music, art. I'm grateful for all the experiences I had, and I don't blame anybody for anything. I'm glad it happened. Speaking of 90s icons coming back into the limelight, Netflix last week released their latest documentary. Pamela Love Story attempts to tell Pamela Anderson's sensational life story in her own words in the latest of a trending genre of women famous chewed up and spat out trying to reclaim their narrative. This genre of both fiction and non-fiction is hit and miss with some positive examples like Nothing Compares, which was last year's Sinead O'Connor documentary, allowing archive interview clips from Sinead herself to set the scene. Marsha, 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 also the Emmy Award-winning sixth and best episode of season one of American Crime Story, flipped the O.J. Simpson trial on its head by for the first time telling it through the eyes of prosecutor Marsha Clark. Then you have the likes of framing Britney Spears and Blonde, most recently getting it horribly wrong. They did this by putting on an air of faux sanctimony and concern for their subject matters, pointing out their judgmental eye outwards without having the self-awareness to realise that they themselves are reopening the same kind of worms they're trying to decry. Blonde did this by, on several occasions, literally putting the camera inside of Marilyn Monroe's vagina. While framing Britney Spears spent swathes of the movie focusing on how she repeatedly told the media to leave her alone, all the while bringing up every single last horrific drama that she'd gone through for one more lap. Another horrific example that told itself it had good attentions is last year's Hulu series, Pam and Tommy, which claims it's on Pamela Anderson's side in the fictionalised retelling of how her and ex-husband Tommy Lee's sex tape was made public, but then went ahead without her consent sent her wishes and proceeded to make it a slapstick comedy with sympathetic leanings for the person responsible for seeing the tape. Fortunately, Pamela, a love story is one of the more positive examples and it's really not a difficult formula to see why this works. What does every project I've listed have in common? The word consent comes to mind. All of the projects had the blessing of their featured characters as opposed to the ones who had full bull in the china shop while lying to themselves that they weren't the tabloid smut that they were attempting to condemn. 
The feature gives us unprecedented access to Pamela and her family. Her and her sons dust off old home videos and Pamela allows the makers to access to her diaries from the period, though she insists on camera that someone else read them as she knows her limits for reliving the memories. And again, she isn't forced or pressured into doing so and is allowed to let everything unfold in her own time at her own comfort level. So what do we learn when we tell the story through Pamela's words rather than through Jason Manzoukas playing the talking penis of Sebastian Stan, who's playing Tommy Lee? Well, we learned that Pamela is a mom first and foremost, an ordinary, loving person who puts her sons first. We learned that she has a goofy, charming mom humor. We learned that she is and always has been extremely intelligent, self-reflective or unromantic at heart, but that traumatic childhood experiences made her overly trusting of the wrong people or inclined to go along with things that she was uncomfortable with rather than pushing back. Through archive clips, the usual scumbags that we're now used to showing up in these documentaries, making jokes that have aged like milk, are back again. Shout out to Pierce Morgan, Jay Leno, Larry King and Howard Stern all of whom made their misogyny earn the millions. What's perhaps my favourite aspect of the movie is that we start to see a dramatic arc unfold in the movie itself as reliving old clips drudges up some old feelings and new reflections. Pamela describes herself as a person who just does things and as such there isn't really a polished pre-planned focus group approved narrative that she's trying to push towards. In real time cameras get to follow highs and lows like a return of hers to Broadway or experiencing the release of Pam and Tommy in real time. And that's engaging because Pamela herself and her family are engaging. Pam and Tommy would have been a reasonably entertaining show if it were fiction, but knowing that they went ahead while she loudly opposed made it a kind of icky watch. Having her empowered here and spending time with her reflecting on it makes a gigantic difference. It's a really good documentary, a pleasant surprise from Netflix, whose documentary brand has begun to become almost ITV-like for being exploitative and taking advantage of disadvantaged, uneducated, desperate people to mock for a monthly subscription money. This was sensitive, compassionate, and gentle without pulling any punches either. It's exactly what you want it to be and all made possible just by asking the person involved if they actually wanted to do it. I hope others looking to milk this cash cow were taking notes. You have to understand that we cannot and will not choose who is to be sacrificed for you. And just as importantly, we cannot act for you. You cannot kill yourselves. We're not choosing anyone. We're not sacrificing anyone. Not now, not ever. Even if it means the death of everyone else in the world. Yes. Even if I believe the world was at stake, which I don't, that's what it means. I would watch the world die a hundred times over before having... Christ. Waste of time. Never gonna choose to do this. And I don't blame him. Could you decide upon then kill a beloved member of your family within a few hours of being told that failure to do so would result in the apocalypse? That's the question that forms the basis of N. Night Shyamalan's latest movie starring Dave Bautista, Rupert Grint and Jonathan Groff, Knock at the Cabin, which was released last weekend. We catch up with a director that's had more twists than Toby Checker as the M. Night Shyamalan is in full swing. Things look bleak for the Sixth Sense creator for a few years with misses becoming the norm, but in recent times with the likes of Split, Glass and even 2021's Old, has seen him back to producing reliably watchable movies that get typically solid receptions and do reasonably good business. So we could approach this latest release that feels like it's being advertised everywhere for months with a sense of excitement. The question then became, could it live up to the billing? Well, put it this way. I'm not going to spoil it, but M. Night is obviously known for his twists. And without giving anything away about the plot, I can tell you right now here that the big twist in this movie is that he's 
got nothing. This is this is not a good movie. In practice, this feels like an idea that came after an all-night coke binge, and instead of actually developing and sense-checking it, they just kept the party going and went straight to production the next day, assuming they just figure it all out. They did not. The premise itself is intriguing and offers a lot of potential. There's even discussion of interesting concepts like shared delusions, online echo chambers, or targeted homophobic attacks designed to maximize torture upon a non-traditional family unit. Then they just throw away these good ideas in a way that you know the film can't now backtrack towards them in what would have likely been a much better movie had they truly gone down any of these rabbit holes. You hang on to hope though, given that Old, for example, unraveled in a way that made a generally mediocre, quite campy and sometimes funny even attempt at a horror movie that it proceeded to actually more worthwhile and richer because of the twist. Again, I'm not going to tell you what happens, but I can tell you that there is no rescue coming here. Whether the apocalypse in the movie happens or not, there's no miracle cure for this plot. Instead, what we get is a movie filled with unearned melodrama and expensive set pieces that have zero impact. Dave Batista in particular is way too good an actor for this. I felt really bad for him here, trying to demonstrate he's more than a superhero action movie star and acting his arse off to do so, but the movie is just a steaming pile of shite. Him busting out his full range for this is like watching Pavarotti doing a gig in an empty old man pub on a Tuesday afternoon. This is really disappointing stuff from a director you couldn't always guarantee would be good, but you'd at least say it was always interesting. That isn't a guarantee anymore, so the next time M. Night Shyamalan knocks at your cabin, just close the fucking curtains. It's a big week, and it's a nervous week for myself, because obviously... What's going on affects me in a big, big way. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, I can confirm that currently I'm wearing a Philadelphia Eagles hoodie. I've got a Philadelphia Eagles football in the background as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've i got my kind of, I've got my biases uh, fairly, fairly clearly laid out. Um, but obviously, look, I'm nervous as well. It's Super Bowl 57 coming up uh, this weekend uh, live on Sky Sports. Also free, by the way, if you're a Sky subscriber on Sky Showcase. Or uh, also it's on ITV uh, for the first time since 2007, if that's how you want to watch the Super Bowl, if you're a psychopath. Um, that's an option that's open to you. You can have, I don't know, the ITV coverage just wasn't for me. Uh, and I know I'm a bit of a homer, but still. Um, here to discuss it is uh, returning after last week, uh, joining us to discuss the Six Nations, the one and only Irish examiners, David Kent. Kento, uh, Six Nations kicked off, obviously, this weekend. We expected a tough uh, tie against Wales. We expected France to absolutely blitz Italy. It kind of worked out the exact opposite way, which seems really good. Am I right? Um, yes and no. I mean, Ireland did all the hard work in the first half and then forgot how to play rugby for three quarters yeah. of the second half, which was a bit alarming. Um, you know, they, they obviously do a lot of work, but if Wales had, had kind of had their hand in theirs and had, I would if maybe even three or four more weeks with Gatlin as coach, uh, I would I would have been I would have been very uncomfortable there. But listen, got got the bonus point, got the job done, and then watch this Italy. Now, like I did say that they could have beaten them in the preview. I didn't say I expected it. And you're just thinking, Jamie Mack, if Tom- if Tommy Allen's penalty goes yeah, when they're six points down or go when they're five points down, goes about two inches left and sneaks inside the post and they get that late penalty inside the 22, you're like, that one, like one of the biggest upsets in mm. Six Nations. But it didn't happen. And France, now it's the now it's the exact exact opposite, as you say, of what I what we were talking about last week. We were like, oh, Wales give us a test, and Italy won't give France a test. Italy gave them the biggest test they've had in a long time, and we okay. kind of steamrolled our way through, and then sleepwalked our way 
through the Welsh game, so it just it ramps up it ramps up for this weekend now. Um it makes it even more unpredictable for me. Yeah. But also Scotland Scotland beat England and that's just brilliant anyway. Yeah, so. yeah, and that, there you go. We got to enjoy it in the middle. As well though, I think the the weekend conditions are quite nicely because it started off with Everton beating Arsenal. So we were conditioned for sensational upsets and, and that's what made for me that made the Italy game a bit. I'm like, no, look, this could happen like so uh, we've seen weirder like yesterday alone. So uh, really exciting start and uh, yeah, look Tito for an absolute barn burner. But we're not here to discuss the signations, we're here to discuss Phil that Eagles, Kansas City Chiefs, one seed in the NFC, one seed in the AFC. This Sunday, 11.30 p.m. in the State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona. Um, we're kind of, again, we're not going to get into heavy analysis because we're a week out. There's a lot still to kind of go in. We don't have full up-to-date team news. Obviously, there could be narratives and stuff to kind of break over Super Bowl week. That's a whole event in itself. So we're just going to give a general preview and kind of set you up and put you in the mood. And then if you want to kind of get more in-depth, you can as, as kind of the week goes on. Uh, in particular, I recommend the likes of Bill Barnwell on ESPN around the NFL podcast as well. They're kind of the, the go-tos that I've had, uh, that I'd have as well. Um, Let's start at kind of the line. It's opening up with the Eagles at minus 1.5. The total over under for points is 50.5, which for me is an absolute steal. Uh, I think this is going to be a high scoring game, but the Eagles coming in favorites. Is that something that identical records, Um, but is that something that kind of surprised you or does that sound about right to you? I think it just like it just sounds about right, but like I would I would have been very surprised if it was asking more than one point five in the market because that like obviously like they're gonna put they have to put it one way or the other. That's a coin toss. I could look at that tomorrow. I'd say and it could be the Chiefs minus one point five, and I wouldn't be, like I wouldn't be surprised. Like you you mentioned it, it's the number one seed against the number one seed. It is the two best teams in the Super Bowl, and that's kind of what we want every time. If we if our own teams can't make it, like some some unfortunate souls. Um, but like you like you're looking at it going there's so and there will be so many stories. You know, I agree with you with the points uh total as well. I can see this being I can see this being one where you're thinking about it in ten years' time and going, Wow, like we had this with the two best teams in the league, two probably two best quarterbacks, like some of the best like receiving cores and defense, Hassan Reddick for the Eagles, and then you just got to like <laughs> it's, it's mouth watering. I cannot wait. Like I'm just, I'm already counting down to where it's like, and I can't imagine why you're like, like you're an Eagles fan, as you, as you mentioned. Like your, 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 your nerves are probably all over the road. But as a neutral coming into it, it's like, I'm just get me to get me to Sunday night, get me to me popcorn, me pizza, me drinks, like bring, like bring it on. Would you a classic Super Bowl and everything points to that here? You know, I, again, the bookies are always going to try slant one way or another and the market will also kind of have a say in that as well. I see where they're going for because the Eagles have blown out two teams, but obviously then you're you're having the Giants who were just a bit overmatched. Um, if the Eagles were coming in at full strength, which we 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 have throughout the playoffs, and the 49ers were banged up again. That we did blow them out, but that wasn't a true measure of kind of the 49ers. Whereas the the Chiefs have struggled and they kind of you know crawled and limped over the line, literally in the case of Patrick Mahomes with his last gas play, like literally being the only kind of significant run and play he had at a because he, he has had his own uh, high ankle. Uh, spraying issues recently that's kind of ha- hampered them. Uh, hopefully shouldn't this weekend because I think we do want to see everyone in, in kind of flying form. But these two teams have so many similarities. I think for me this is set up to be an absolute classic Super Bowl. The best Super Bowl since the last time the Eagles were in the Super Bowl against the Pats. Um, I'd say and, and we're, we're due an absolute classic as well. Uh, but when you look at everything there's so many similarities and not to mention as well and we won't kind of go too in depth on this. Both teams 
teams have a Kelsey. <laughs> the, the, the Kelsey brothers. You have the Eagles starting center, Jason Kelsey, and you have the Chiefs star tight end, Travis Kelsey, uh, playing. Uh, they won't be on the field at the same time, um, but they are uh, on each side. And that's how similar they are. But the coaches as well are, are two coaches who spent time in the opposite dugout. Andy Reid is one of the heroes of Philadelphia hired in 1999 coached us for 14 years had one Super Bowl appearance obviously lost against the Patriots we avenged that loss obviously after he left took us a five championship get NFC championship games one more games than any coach in, the, in franchise history um but again, then you have kind of the Eagles. They're in the second Super Bowl since he left and kind of have almost been more successful without having the tenure. Uh, Nick Sirianni has, has taken him to him in his second year. Uh, he spent four years at the Chiefs. So very interesting article up on the athletic.com if you subscribe to that and I recommend you do. Some great coverage there. Uh, originally hired under his friend Todd Haley. It was his first NFL job for the Chiefs. Uh, as a quality control coach, he was promoted to assistant QB coach and then wide receiver coach. After Haley left. Uh, he worked there under offensive coordinator Brian Dabble, who was obviously um, the New York Giants coach now that he saw off in the playoffs uh, and also met his wife there. Um, again, but the the, the, the kind of contrast doesn't end there. Both of them were fired in 2012. <laughs> the Reed went to the Chiefs. Sirianni went to the Chargers before he went to the Colts. Uh, and then like since then, uh, Reed has one Super Bowl win and five AFC championships with the Chiefs. Uh, Sirianni has made the playoff in both years with one Super Bowl. So there's kind of a, they've never worked directly together, but there's parallels there that are undeniable. It's not so much a teacher versus student case. If Doug Peterson was the coach still, that would be more similar. And we had that earlier in the playoffs when the Chiefs faced the Jags. Um, But there is kind of, you know, the greatest coach in the Eagles history versus someone who, maybe playing for that one day and can already in his second season there outdo what Andy Reid did in terms of achievements. Where do you think the advantage lies in terms of the coaching battle? Because obviously their history only plays so much, but you have the experience kind of um, head in Andy Reid, but then in Nick Sirianni, you have the, the new hungry if you've listened to him in interviews, he's not afraid to say it. I remember when the Eagles beat uh, the Indianapolis Colts, uh, who Sirianni used to work for at the Colts. We beat them in the last minute with one of the last plays of the game, a uh, very close, tense game. And then Sirianni went around just yelling, that was for Frank Reich, who the Colts had sacked previously. Uh, he doesn't mind like saying it what he means. Very well suited to the city of Philadelphia. Um, who do you think has the, the the advantage here, though, when it comes to the X's and O's? It's really like it's a really interesting point. You're thinking that it's almost like it's a young, it's not a young pretender to Andy Reid, obviously, but you're thinking it's like second season for an achievement for Sirianni to, to even get him to the Super Bowl. Like obviously, look, we're talking about the squad that they have and the and the. And the, the Stars that they have on both all three teams, really, to include Jack Elliott. Um, but like he still has to, he still has to coach that group, he still has to manage that, and he's done that spec- like magnificently. Andy Reid, famous for not winning a Super Bowl with Philadelphia, having had incredible star power as well. But like you mentioned, took them to took them to heights that they hadn't seen in a long time, and then it, suddenly he's up against this fella who's like, ah, oh, look, look at what I can do, and you just. I'm not going to say that he will say it because I'm, I think he might have a bit more respect for him. But you get, I can, like, if you talk to me on Monday and Nick Sirianni in a post match press in, in post match press winning press conference, and just sitting there with the Super Bowl and going, "Look, Andy, look what I have!" I can easily see him doing it. Yeah, he's so, the type. Like, and don't get me wrong, all for that. 
all for coaches that are like that. And Andy Reid isn't like, don't get me wrong, Andy Reid's not exactly partial to uh, cutting things loose at times as well, just in his own, in his own, uh, in his own way. He's more calm about it, but he's just like he's kind of like Alex Ferguson. That's it. He'll give you a dig, he'll give you a dig in the ribs while looking straight at your face and going, yeah. Um, but like, I just, it's, it's, it's as you say, it's just such a good matchup in terms of uh, playbooks, in terms of uh, panels and squads and. If there was an over-under on, so I'm just going to sneak this in because you were talking about the Kelsey's. If there was an over-under market on how many times their mom is shown on the camera, yeah. I'd be looking at maybe about 45. Because every time, so like if if Travis Kelsey does a 20-yard run, uh, run after uh, run after catch, they're going to cut to her. If I don't know what this is. Like the, Jason Kelsey snaps the ball badly or something. It's just going to cut to her. Um, but like it's 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 just it's magnificent. I'm, and I do. I'll always go for experience in Super Bowls. Now that might like that. Obviously, has come. You can point to X, Y, and Z for how that doesn't work. Belichick against anyone, any Super Bowl that the Patriots lost in the last fifteen years uh, is is the antithesis of that. But if you've been there and you've like you've been there, you've won and you've lost, then you think you've you, you're able to you're able to instill that in, in players and particularly in like rookies or younger players who haven't been there before whereas Andy Reid has been there done that got the trophy got the runner-up t-shirts got everything Sirianni it'll be interesting to see how he deals with it I'm like he could easily come out and just nail it and and be able or he might get caught up too much into it it doesn't seem like he is already but you never know on game day itself if the ref makes a bad call if something doesn't quite go to plan what his reaction will be is fantastic whereas be more confident than Andy Reid Going, oh look, fourth and two didn't work out fine. Let's move on. But that's just what comes with experience. So, listen, as a second year coach, a second year head coach, I haven't been coaching for a long time as well. But Reed's, like I said, Andy Reed been there, so I'd lean towards experience in that sense. But again, I, I, I like it's 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 just such a it's like I said, it's just such a coin flip. You could talk me into that. It's a, a very similar battle then at quarterback where you have Patrick Mahomes against Jalen Hurts. And Patrick Mahomes, you have the MVP in waiting. Um, but in Jalen Hurts, you have someone who, at least up until December, when he obviously got hurt for the last few games and then came back when he wasn't quite 100%. The MVP is obviously judged on, on regular season performance. That's when the votes are tallied and so on. Um, he would have felt that he would have been a strong contender for that. In terms of numbers, look, Mahomes does have him beat when you, you judge it based on numbers solely. Uh, Mahomes finished 14 and 3 despite losing Tyree Kill, the star wide receiver, and having to make deal with the likes of Juju Smith Schuster, who didn't kind of replicate what Hill used to bring to the team. He led the league in passing yards. There was nobody within 500 yards of him. He led the league in passing TDs. There was no one within five touchdowns of, of him. And he led the lead, league in total QBR, which is quarterback rating. And it's just kind of how uh, a way of measuring kind of efficiency as a quarterback and making the right choices and kind of measures against like the strength of the defenses that they play as well. Uh, no one was in six points of them. So again, when you look at it purely statistical, uh, you know, Mahomes is there. He's won a Super Bowl before. Again, if you're talking experience, this is Hurts' first Super Bowl. Uh, you know, if you were looking at Hurts last year, one thing that people kind of said, and there was there was kind of a question around Hurts. It isn't there anymore, but there was a question around Hurts coming into this season because of how outmatched and how out of place he looked in last year's playoffs uh, as we lost to Tom Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So... 
this is his first Super Bowl. This is obviously another step up, although he has performed admirably in the playoffs so far and kind of, you know, put cast that demon to bed. He can win the playoffs. He's taking his team to Super Bowl now. But again, this is a whole other level of attention. This is a whole other level of expectation and pressure. Mahomes has done it before. We've seen him win it. Who do you think has the advantage at QB? For me, I'm looking at it, and I'm looking at Jalen Hurts particularly, and it just seems so driven. He seems to, like first again. You mentioned he's not been in the league, so, like he's been in the league a wet, wet, wet week in like long term in in Four a bigger years, picture yeah. kind of thing. So the fact that he's already like just seems so he's got a team for the Super Bowl for one. He's looked good in all every like obviously up until week sixteen, wasn't it when he came out? I think it was mm. like that's the what fourteen and three both teams. So let's see the Eagles. Two of the losses came with Minshew as quarterback. Yeah. And the other was that weird one against Commanders. it was when you were eight and oh. Wasn't yeah, it? The commanders. Yeah. They just they just they just caught us. And, like, yeah, exactly. We a weird fight. game of football. It wasn't yeah. like Hertz like threw five interceptions in those games. It was like he the two he was missing, the team somewhat collapsed without him. Mm. But even still it came within so it was seven points of the Cowboys and the Saints, wasn't it, in seventeen? Yeah. Um so like this like when they when he drops out, there is a big loss. But like he, I can just say, and you see with his demeanor, with his interviews, with you see him in these in these um videos from from practice and from the from team meetings as well, where you see people talking about him. He just seems so mature and such a such a wise enough head. It's kind of like Burrow last year for the Bengals, where it's like anyone else you think might be overawed by the situation, whereas he obviously like like put that as you mentioned, put it to bed the ones from last year. Learn took has obviously taken the lessons from that and is now just head down, laser focused on the target, and that's just what Patrick Mahomes is like every day now. And it's just like, okay, Patrick Mahomes is in another Super Bowl, great, but this is what he does. He got got blown out by the Bucks, came back, has a ring on his finger already, where from blowing out the, the Niners, I think it was, wasn't it? Yep. In terms of actually on the field, I actually give the advantage to Hertz, and it's pure like you mentioned the passing stats for. Mahomes and TDs, the yards, the high QB rate, and he, he is not as mobile as Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts second in rushing yards for the Eagles, I think behind uh behind Miles Sanders for the season, but he still got something like seven hundred and fifty yards in the regular season. And he's like he's comfortable coming out of the pocket and scrambling and getting like and seeing a tackler standing up a tackler. Mahomes can do that when he has to. But I don't think he prefer like I don't think if he can make a read and suddenly there's two or three lads coming down on top of him, he'll slide. Whereas Hertz might look for that extra couple of yards. He'll put himself at risk. Now that might be a bit naive in the short term, but longer term, like that's there sorry, it might be naive in the longer term because he'd probably get hurt doing it. But he's he's always looking to go forward. Whereas Mahomes, especially now with the ankle question as well, Mahomes not a hundred percent the last couple of weeks. We're still getting questions about him. How is that ankle? If you can get him out of the pocket. If the Eagles defense can get him out of the pocket on Sunday, it'll be very interesting to see what he does. Does he try and get it out to Kelsey, or does he try and scramble? Does he get rid of the ball? Whereas if you get if you get Jalen Hurts out of the pocket, he's almost a little bit more comfortable. He's like, okay, you know what? Fine, we'll make this play happen one way or the other, um, which is remarkable again for 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 a young cornerback. I don't see that. I don't see any deviation from that in the Super Bowl. I don't see any special tricks from Sirianni, um, but like he could prove him wrong. And also, you're looking at the. You say you're talking about the Chiefs relying on like Kelsey and uh, Juju not doing too well, but there's always someone there. Pacheco is a magnificent running back, especially for my dynasty uh, low ball fantasy team. Um, but then you've got like AJ Brown for 
edge around Devontae Smith for uh, for the Eagles, just the kind of t- the twin towers kind of just wrecking teams no matter what. You throw a ball up, Jerk Hurts confident enough to throw a ball up and let either of them go and get it. Like he's, he's it's it's a case that he can make any pass or make any throw and he knows that his receivers will have a chance. So like it's it's I can't I I'd lean towards Hurts for Sunday, which is mad because it's against Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl, but in terms of this, like I'm just I I I'd be leaning towards that one like just slightly just because of his capability outside the pocket when running. For me, I think I don't like the way MVP is judged. I think it's a redundant. Um, I I, I hate it. It's it's always a quarterback these days. Um, there's no scope for it, despite there being clearly examples of teams where you know if you lose key defenders or if you lose key running backs or skill players then it affects it way more than if you lost your starting quarterback. The likes, if you think of the Titans, you think of the Chargers with the likes of uh, Aaron Donald with the Rams and so on as well. Uh, you know, there there are, play- like, I think, I don't like the way MVP is judged and it's just purely on stats and it's judged on who is the best stats of quarterback. And if, like, Hurts lost this because he got injured, which isn't his fault and it is it shouldn't be counted against him. And and we can judge up, we can judge it up to yards per game or, or touchdowns per game. Now, Mahomes still would have not beat in terms of sheer numbers. But what I like to look at as well is the difference, the most valuable player, when you look at the wording of that, it's based around who wh- whose team would be more lost without them. And we saw, actually, what the Eagles were like without Hurts. It just wasn't the same under Minshew. And Minshew is one of the better backup quarterbacks. And the Eagles as well, when we last won the Super Bowl, we won it with a backup quarterback. We have a good, well-rounded squad, but Hurts is just that difference maker for us. And he, Mahomes is for the Chiefs as well. Don't get me wrong. They're two very similar quarterbacks but when you look at kind of the impact that they had on the team one thing I like to look at is against the spread records so for example this season the Chiefs they're not a great team if you're betting on them to cover first off part of that is again they're victim of their own success they get quite high handicap lines so because they're expected to do well and score loads and blow out teams because of having the Mahomes factor but they they play a lot of close games so they are 7-10 and 10 against the spread in the regular season which is a pretty shocking record the Eagles were 8-9 and nine, only one game better but that includes the three games where Hertz was injured, including the Bears game, obviously, where he went down first, but also the Giants game when he came back where he wasn't 100% and he kind of backdoor covered. So really that's closer to 11 or 12, 9 probably, or 11 or 12, um, rather than 8 if like if Hertz was, uh, if, if Hertz was healthy. It probably ends up at that. The Eagles blow teams out with Hurts and the end he drives them like he drives them forward. Literally, he does. Like fourth and one, Hurts just every single time will convert it with a QB sneak. It's become a superpower. Um, and 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 so for me, I feel that Hurts has the advantage. He can run, he can throw, he can do everything that Mahomes can do. Mahomes will get more trick plays, uh, and, and he's quite good at doing kind of unexpected things and improvising. And I think that's Mahomes' superpower, but also Hurts just has options to damage you so severely in so many ways. So again, I'm obviously going to be biased towards the Eagles, but uh, yeah, I I, I just got to point that out. So let's kind of get to it because we're already kind of getting to that anyway. Let's talk about predictions. Again, you're looking at the two teams' strength of schedule. You're looking at the Chiefs. They probably had a tougher uh, road to the Super Bowl in terms of the playoffs. They got through the Jags and the Bengals, whereas the Eagles uh, defeated the Giants and the Bengals 49ers. But again, you can only play what's in front of you uh, but the, the the Chiefs are probably more battle hardened going into that since that seems to be between the Six Nations and now this week a metric that we're using um, 
what do you see kind of how are you, how are you feeling i know we're a week out and a lot can change within that week and as we kind of you know dig deeper into kind of the research and whatnot but how are you feeling we're recording this on the, the monday um by the way for anyone wondering so so where's it where's it kind of sitting with you I think one of the most important kind of metrics and uh, moments that we will see probably multiple times throughout it is when the Chiefs are, are, are driving and they're on maybe third and fourth, third and fourth, third and five, because that's usually when they press the Kelsey button. And it's like, right, we need short yardage here. Just give it to Travis Kelsey. Put him on a put him on an out route, put him on a curl, put him on a slant, whatever you want to do. Just make sure he gets the ball. If the Eagles can either shut down Kelsey on that or get to Mahomes, which, like we're talking, I said it earlier, Hassan Reddick, mm-hmm. 21 sacks for the season, including the postseason now. Monster. Absolutely monster stat. Or, like, and there's, 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 a, there's another few people on the Eagles at uh, D-line that could easily get to him as well. But if they can just, like, stop that, stop on them third, stop them on third and short and try and force them to either go, force, go for it on fourth, depending on where they are, or get the ball back into Jalen Hurts' hands. That'll be key. That'll be almost the game. That'll be almost where this game is won and lost, because you've seen you've seen Kansas City often, so often turn drives where they're looking down, where they're looking like they're going three and out, and suddenly they just manage to get the first one, and they that suddenly starts in Mahomes makes it twenty and like that sets them up, even like on the halfway line. So say they've gone from a punt or or a kickoff, and it's just gone out the back of the end zone, third and five on the road thirty or whatever it is. And suddenly you're thinking, oh, God, they're going to have to give a straight back three and out. And they just make a play with Kelsey more often than not, because that's just reliability. That's that's who that's who Mahomes feels most comfortable with. Um, and why wouldn't you? It's Travis Kelsey. He's a, just a gigantic human being. So if the Eagles just shut him down there and if they can get Mahomes out of the pocket and get him running on that ankle and let's see how good it is, then that's they will win this game. I still think, like, I agree with you in the sense that 50 for the points, man. I'm talking, I can see this being won by a field goal. I can see it being won in overtime. I could easily see this being maybe 42-39 with a, with a game winner from Jake Elliott uh, in, in overtime. I just think that the Eagles have a little bit of an advantage. And I, do, I, just, I'm, I'm, I am putting it all on Hurts, and I'm putting it all on the strength of the, uh, on strength of the defense and how... We've had questions about Mahomes leading into it. Questions about the ankle. Is he good? Is he going to be able to scramble as much as he can, or as much as he used to? Is he going to be able to make these trick plays? What's what's going to be up his sleeve? Like we haven't seen Juju do that much this year. He's still got like 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 uh, we haven't really talked about Chiefs running game again. Pacheco unbelievable first season. Jet McKinnon still still somehow uh, uh, an elite level uh, running back like. Should have been like should not be for me as good and is in the in the Super Bowl with for what he for what he brings to a team. But fair play to him for working on it, and fair play to to the Chiefs for trusting them with it because he's still able to just make that 15, 20 yard game uh, when you need him to. But I'm just I'm uh, there's just something about the Eagles that are making me look at it and going, they're they're definitely the favor for me. And it's weird to say I just there's just something about the way they've been playing, the way they've been. As you mentioned, they were blowing out. They were blowing out teams. Yeah, look, not a test in the playoffs. Not every team gets a test in the playoffs before the Super Bowl. I've no, I've no worries about them in that sense because they've been tested throughout the year as well. Um, so and like as as you mentioned, if it wasn't for one, uh, if it wasn't for one Cincinnati Bengals shoving Patrick Mahomes out of bounds, might have well been the Bengals we're talking about this week. So I just I, I see it being a belter. I'm really really hoping it was it's a belter. It's like as you mentioned, we're due a real classic. 
And we're still due. Every every Super Bowl that is better than the Patriots Rams won a few years ago, that's still up there, ingrained into the back of my mind as the worst Super Bowl of all time. I need a classic to kind of just help push that out of my head. I'm really hoping for this Sunday. I have the Eagles by a field goal. Maybe in overtime, it's just going to be tough. But I reckon the like, I wouldn't be surprised if the Eagles then just went nuts as well. But in my head, it's it's Eagles by a field goal. Okay. Um, I'm obviously biased. I sit here, like I said, with my Eagles hoodie on or my Eagles NFL ball in the background. I am biased, but I also feel very confident about this. Not only am I going to give you a prediction, I'm going to give you a bet builder. I'm going to give you a bet to put on a week out ahead of the game. Kendall, you're familiar with how I pick Super Bowls this year and anyone who's kind of, you know, listened to old shows of mine or followed me on, on socials and stuff like that will probably be sick of me here and say this. But I think I've got a tried and true tested method. I think last year's Super Bowl was the first time in about eight or nine years I didn't make money on a Super Bowl. Um, and it went, it just went the opposite way. Uh, but this method more often than not is, is how it's done. It's not about the X's and O's in the Super Bowl. It's about... The Super Bowl is the sports movie and it's about the narrative. Who is the more compelling narrative? So it's about figuring out like what is the storyline and that's it. And then you kind of go backwards from there and work out, well, if that team has the best narrative and it just works this way, for whatever reason, we've seen it time after time after time where the bet you have the best team and you have the team with the best narrative. It's like the Denver Broncos with Peyton Manning in his last ever game, hanging on by a thread to his career. He is not playing well. The team's not playing well against the Carolina Panthers who are absolutely dominating in the season and the Broncos still win just because that's the storyline Nick Foles playing against the best uh, replacement level quarterback the last time the Eagles were in the Super Bowl playing against the greatest ever to do it in Tom Brady there's no reasons for the Eagles to win that game they won that game so then you ask how that happens and what's the storyline we're hearing here okay so you have the experience in Andy Reid you have the experience in Patrick Mahomes you have the MVP in waiting you have the people that are just presumed constantly like like Hertz didn't get a look in with a lot of the experts when it came to the MVP race, despite the fact that when it came to it, the Eagles were the best team in the NFL this season, and he was the reason why. That is what an MVP is. So if I'm Jalen, I'm not saying that Jalen Hurts should have won the MVP. I'm actually kind of happier that he didn't, because on Saturday, he Mahomes is going to get it, and Jalen Hurts is going to have a fire lit up his arse. Nick Sirianni is going to go in there with everyone kind of questioning him and doubting him, which has been the case all season. When you look at kind of how the two teams got here though the Eagles finished 14 and 3 with an identical record as Kansas City but they actually had the toughest strength of schedule in the league when you take the schedule or the records of the teams that they beat they they're opposing uh, the opposing win record of the teams that they beat in the league was 57% whereas the Chiefs it was just 51% they beat the Lions the Vikings the Cowboys the Jaguars the Packers the Titans and the Cardinals when they still had Kyler Murray playing playing well um, throughout the season and only lost one game when Hurts was healthy. So you have two, a coach and a star player who were the best team in the league whenever every, anyone was healthy, who are getting totally overlooked because it's Andy Reid and it's Patrick Mahomes. That is going to light a fire under their arse and that is also going to create an element of complacency for Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. So how are they going to do it? It's going to be a high scoring game, but also as well what you have to see and what you have to take into account is how the teams got there. The, the 
Eagles are capable of shutting great offenses down. I'm not going to say the 49ers were a great offense. They have a lot of great skill players, but didn't have a quarterback to drive it last week, thanks to Brock Purdy getting injured quite early. But also, when you look at the likes of the Minnesota game, when you look at the Cowboys game, when you look at the Jaguars game, when you look at like solid offenses that they played throughout the seasons, the Eagles can shut them down on defense. Kansas City cannot say the same. The Kansas, Kansas City, you always will score 20 odd points against them at least I think the 50.5 over under is an easy over for me I think this is going to be a high scoring game but I think the Eagles are more capable of shutting down the Chiefs than the Chiefs are capable of shutting down the Eagles so I'm going to have the Eagles to cover the minus 1.5 line I think it may still be close but like I don't think it's going to be that close I, I feel confident with that Um, I think it's going to take the over the problem is when I look at when I do bet builders I like to go Handicap line, over-under, and anytime touchdown scorer. The Eagles are very hard to pick an anytime touchdown scorer because we have, like, even running. If we score a running touchdown, is it going to come from Hurts, Miles Sanders, Boston Scott, Kenneth Gainwell was the running star um, yeah. in the in the championship game. So we don't know where that's going to come from. Hurts is often your safest bet. But even in terms of uh, catching, you have Dallas Goddard, you have AJ Brown, you have Devontae Smith. You don't know who's going to actually make the catch or who's going to make the big play that sets up the catch in the red zone, you know? So again, it, it's just a case of like, I never bet the anytime touchdown scorer with the Eagles. I think it's easy for the Chiefs, Travis Kelsey anytime. Um, so Eagles minus 1.5 over 50.5, Travis Kelsey anytime. And I feel confident with that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go there. But again, I could be totally biased. I may be on this show this week completely disconsolate and heartbroken. So you never know. We could get blown out as well. Um, last but not least, I also want to touch on Rihanna has her first live performance in over five years uh with the Super Bowl halftime show. Is there anything you're looking forward to here? Is there any cameos you expect? What do you kind of hope? before from Rihanna or is this not your bag like what, how are you feeling about this in general oh, it's, it's a welcome return like there was so much pressure put onto Rihanna for like fans just to go make new music make new music now and, like she's doing everything else in life she's got a baby she's making her own business she's doing the makeup and the underwear and everything like that let her be and then like oh right grand so I think we're done with Rihanna now so let's everyone move on to the and like bang back at the Super Bowl like the biggest thing on American television second biggest sporting event in the world I think in terms of viewership uh, outside of an Olympic year anyway but it's just like it's I'm like I'm, I'm gonna it's one of them ones where you're like ah even if the game is terrible you know and this game isn't gonna be terrible you know the halftime show is gonna be good again I'm gonna go back to the Patriots Rams game at Super Bowl a few years ago when they had Maroon 5 as the halftime show and it was terrible and that was the worst thing of all time ever on television so Delight, Rihanna. Like uh, cameos, I'm sure. Like I can name, you can pick anyone out of a hat, and there's going to be cameos. And it's going to be absolutely brilliant. It reminds me a bit like when uh, Coldplay had it in Beyonce and Bruno Mars come out, and it's like mm. class. Just I class. think I think we got Jay Z definitely nailed on for Umbrella. I'd say Jay Z could be the first thing we see, just so it's like, oh shit. It's like, oh, they just, they literally started this with Jay-Z. Um, yeah. And Umbrella's a great song. Calvin Harris for We Found Love. I think that's going to be there as well. Um, I hope it, I hope she just goes. And again, the Super Bowl halftime show, they know to just play the hits, play the ones everyone wants to hear. Don't mess around with new material.
real too much. Um, I don't mind if she does one good song or one new song. Again, Rihanna tends to do bangers anyway, but uh, yeah, I can't wait. It's going to be great. David Kent of the Irish Examiner. Always a pleasure. Follow him on socials at Kento CCFC. Uh, check him out on the Irish Examiner and buy a physical paper, guys. Show, show your support. Um, it all helps. And the Irish Examiner, the guy, David and the guys over there are doing amazing work in terms of Irish journalism. Guys, uh, moving on, we're going to move on to uh, into the spoiler-verse for The Last of Us, episode four. So be very careful after this. You're going to hear spoilers. If you haven't seen it yet, tune out now and tune back in when you have seen the episode. David Kent, thanks again for joining us. Got something else. It's a light on the reading, but it has some interesting pictures. Oh, no, no, no. Put that back. That's not for kids. How do you even walk around with that thing? Please get rid of it. Who's your horses? I want to see what all the fuss is about. Why are all these pages stuck together? Uh... I'm just fucking with you. Guys, just before we begin, a word and a reminder on what the rules around spoilers are. So, if you've seen the latest episode of The Last of Us, you're safe. Go ahead. We won't spoil anything on you. If you play the games, we want to give you something that will entertain you because we all are game players. But if you haven't played the games, don't worry. While we will allude to things in the game, it's either to give you context or to get you hyped up for stuff that's to come. We won't give you any spoilers of any plot details from the game. So, like I said, if you've seen the episode, you're safe to go ahead if you haven't seen it come back to us when you have seen it and uh, you'll get the full picture all right guys it's that time of the week getting some feedback on the show and people are regularly saying that this is this is this is the money maker this segment this is what the people are coming in for uh, we're going to talk about the last of us and give context to the episode that was and joining me to do so uh we have not one but two kevins back again there we go so uh <laughs> From Fan Club, we have Kevin <laughs> Keane, and we also have from the world of professional wrestling, uh, the volume and bruiser, Kevin Metcalf. Hey, Kev, Kevin's, how are we? Hey, how's it going? How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm liking this talking in sync business. It's <laughs> like, which one are you talking to? <laughs> so economic, like, yeah, it's about just, just throwing it out there. Whatever Kevin wants to go, just, just throw it right back at me. Um, bruiser, you're back. Uh, very welcome back. Last week, you, you picked a hell of a week to miss. It's one of the most talked about TV uh, episodes since probably the Red Wedding or thereabouts, maybe like the last Game of Thrones or something like that. Pretty, pretty hyped up. Uh, you've had a chance to catch up, I know, but it's been been a crazy week. So uh, a crazy week mm. for you and you're kind of rushing. So how, how's it sitting with you? How are you catching up? Are you still in? Yeah. Are you? Yeah, no, obviously I'm still in. I, I will admit that it's just, I, I don't really watch TV weekly ever. Right. Uh, and so it's just fucking difficult to make sure you fit in. I know it's only a bleeding hour, right? But like, I could fit in 50 episodes of The Office when I'm half falling asleep, like, but it's just to actually have a pay attention hour in your life is <laughs> difficult. But uh, yeah, when I pressed play yesterday and realized it was 75 minutes, I instantly disliked it. Um, <laughs> you know, like, fuck that. I much more enjoyed episode four when it was 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, nice. it, it, it was fun, it was enjoyable. Uh, they really fleshed out that story. Um, yeah, very different, wasn't it? Very different. They really fleshed her out well. Acting was incredible, obviously, through it. Like, they've really gone for these heart-wrenching, which is good because the game's obviously heart-wrenching. Yeah. The whole story is. But, 
Yeah. yeah, it was fucking grim and depressing, just kind of the way you want. You're the last of us to be, isn't it? <laughs> That's it, yeah. Grim, grim and depressing. That's what we're here for. Um, guys, we're going to talk about episode four, and I know I've got I've got some good news for, for, for you, Bruce, here, if you haven't realized it. So, uh, yeah, no, we'll get to that when we get to it. But first, we're going to recap it for anyone who's kind of catching up or watching it on Sunday and just wants to kind of get it back on pace for where we were. So we'll talk you through what happened in episode four. And you'd know uh, she was on a HBO show because Ellie woke up this morning and she got herself a gun which meant the little psychopath was in flying form on the road blasting the Hank Williams cassette on the radio looking at Bill's old gay porn mags and reading from her pun book you can do puns about almost anything for these days like for example did I tell you I didn't I don't think I told you guys the feedback I got from people who were listening to our views every week did I, did I say just see us yeah, they no. said we really spoke to them. Um, <laughs> uh, after hitting the dead end on a highway, Joel and Ellie had to travel through a city where they come across a group of anti-Fedra vigilantes who crash the car and begin shooting. Joel took out two but needed to be rescued by Ellie who shot the third. Joel would later reward her attempted murder by allowing her to keep the gun and training her how to shoot it properly. It was a really touching moment if you're a sociopath. Uh, we meet some uh, non-playable characters who can apparently say more than, we're going to get you motherfucker though let's be clear they do still say those things a lot too uh they're led by kathleen who finds the bodies joel of ellie joel and ellie have left and blame it on someone they're already looking for called henry during their search though they come across what seems to be the ground swelling ominously they take the jer's apartment is smelling a gas but he's also hungry and there's something good on telly approach and decide it's probably going to be fine if they'll worry about it some other time and look i'm still here is all i'm saying guys so like that approach can work sometimes um joel and ellie hollow for the night in a Stairwell as Joel's 56 year old legs could as high up as Joel's 56 legs could 56 year old legs could carry him. He does not have 56 legs. That'd be weird. He laid it. <laughs> he lays out some glass so he'll hear anyone approaching. At which point Ellie observes that his hearing isn't the best. Excuse me, Ellie. But how fucking dare you mock Joel's hearing? Have you ever met a man? who could hear through walls whether someone's holding a gun or a two-by-four. Play the fucking games, Ellie, and then talk about Joel's hearing, you fucking noob, right? <laughs> Second later, though, it turns out she was right, to be fair. Um, as Joel is awakened with a gun in his face by who he assumed to be the Henry and Sam the vigilantes are hunting for, and yes, look, it, it is Henry and Sam. Uh, Henry and Sam's man-to-man coverage left a bit to be desired, though. Why, what Their strategy was basically, here, we're going to put the grown man on the teenage girl, and we're going to put the child who had spent his day drawing pictures on the 56 year old man who had murdered three grown men before ravioli this morning uh true faith a last of us classic song plays us out and that was episode four of the last of us kev we're obviously coming off uh an amazing episode three that we spoke about last week uh it was episode four like look it was going to be hard to be at the same level but was this able to kind of get you back or did you feel that this was an inevitable step down or a sideways episode how are you feeling after that epic episode we spoke about last week um it was kind of like a bit of a breather this feels like a part one of two episode um and the fact that it was, I saw it was 45 minutes as well. I was like, oh, this section, I remember in the game is a fairly epic section as well with the with the ambush and everything as well. Um, and it was kind of, a lot of it I, I felt was was rushed and there was other little, there was just scenes that um, I guess kind of just developed Ellie and Joel's relationship, I think a bit more. Um, and it was nice just here. It's because seeing them bonding a little bit. Now I know Ellie has, gone completely psychopath at the start of this like bruiser by the way you're absolutely right 
when with the very first episode you were like i don't like where she's going and i was like no nah, she'll be fine no you're absolutely right yeah um yeah, she's, she's crazy <laughs> yeah she's gone completely crazy but um it's nice seeing like their their um development of their relationship as well it was it was a fine episode i didn't love it though i will yeah. say compared to the last one yeah i'd agree it was it was never gonna fill up bruiser i i feel like i know why you prepared you preferred this episode to episode three because I think one thing that you know obviously this was written and in the can months but like I, I can tell you must be happy because Tommy hasn't been back since and obviously yeah, you weren't yeah. a fan of Tommy but not <laughs> only that but in this episode I don't know if you realised it did you know that we got the OG Tommy in this episode no I didn't no Perry the guy with the guy the, the head honcho of the non-playable characters that was Tommy that was Jeffrey Price yeah Listen to the voice. So yeah, look. At least you got a real Tommy finally. <laughs> that fucking Walmart wannabe. Not my Tommy. <laughs> there you go. You're like literally, that's my Tommy right there. <laughs> uh Bruiser, how how are you feeling? Like, how's the settler with you? Yeah, kind of look, I, I won't wait you because I watched them back to back. I was a bit happier with not and not being an epic episode like number three. Plus, man, back to back like that. And trying to pay it such a great detail, tree knocked knocked it out of me, you know that way. So it was kind of the perfect little, the perfect breeder episode, as Kev said, you know that way. Like they set up a couple of things, they showed you Ellie's a psychopath doing the fucking Robert De Niro impersonation, essentially, uh, which I did enjoy. And I was like, to be honest, if any kid gets a gun, they're probably gonna do that, right? Like if they get if I got a gun, I'd probably do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like fucking, you talking to me, but um. I really enjoyed the scenery in this one actually, and uh, when they're driving along, it's just and the overgrown roads, and it just really goes to show you how fucking messed this apocalyptic world is that they're in, you know. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. Let's talk about Ellie. Um, on the HBO podcast with the creators Craig Mazin, Neil Druckmann, they spoke about. Ellie's stage right now and they described the stage she's at as a kind of a, maybe not the, the wanting to murder people like everyone she meets part that's a whole separate thing but they called the stage she's at the fuck you took me in stage um because that's the way the teenagers are where they're like fuck you go fuck yourself but also she really you know she really responds well to being parented and stuff like that and when Joel was a bit softer with her you could see her kind of responding well there was aspects of her obviously look she shot a guy she paralyzed the guy in this very episode um but how concerned should what's that should have finishing the job like just fucking oh, no, butler like, <laughs> if you're gonna take away a man's legs just take away his life like, yeah it, it, like, it's, a, like ripping, it's like ripping the fucking wings off a fly or some shit and then just letting it get on with it's like but that that's yeah, that's a great point because it's like you know she's standing there and he's like ah he's writhing in pain and like <laughs> was that her hesitating or was that her being like I'm just gonna he's let this dude like, suffer? Yeah, <laughs> lose his legs, prick. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like. Do we, do we need to be concerned about Ellie? Like, is this real? Like, in the same day I seen her stab that thing in the head and enjoy it. Remember, cut the face yeah. and shit. Like, she's fucked, man. Yeah, yeah. he's the villain. and what's interesting about it is they unlike the game the original game they didn't have the last of us part two mapped out and obviously look ellie will continue this isn't a spoiler don't worry like but ellie you know will continue to evolve as a character and a person like you know as you know as time goes on 
and they're kind of writing it with those things in mind and so on. Um, and they, they have the full perspective of the the wider story they're trying to tell. And look, I'm not even saying that Ellie makes it to The Last of Us Part 2, but there's a lot of breadth there to kind of speak about and so on. Um, and that's what makes it interesting because that's why they can evolve characters, I think, at a different pace because they just know what the story is and they know what more of the story is and where characters will go or what will drive them towards certain things and so on. Um, it just helps to have a bigger roadmap to play with. How how concerned should we be? Like, Kev, what do you think? I, I Do you think that it's a, like, that it will turn into a heel turn? Do you think there's going to be a point where we don't like Ellie or do you think that we're going to have a road back from this. Was there any redemptive kind of features in this? I think her shooting that guy, I think she was more hesitant than just like, oh, fuck, I've just shot somebody. Because I think she did feel, she said she killed somebody before, I think later in the episode talking to Joel. And I think it's pro- it's like it's a kid taking someone's life really. And I think she did hesitate. because She's like, oh my God, what have I done? Because he starts pleading with her as well. I think that maybe was... Uh, it maybe set something off in her maybe a little bit I think as well when he was begging for his life which was horrific by the way as well so I think that, that that's what maybe they're alluding to more but I do like, like I said last week I think the arc potentially might be if it's not that if, if it is going down the road of going a bit psychopath that Joel will be, have to be the one to, to bring her back and that will be the arc that, that she goes on Um. I, th- I think that'd be an interesting arc, I think, to maybe do. And it's just it? for a more paternal kind of figure of teaching her, I guess. And I guess it's getting back his humanity, I think, but a little bit as well. He's like, whoa, don't become like the way I was. Yeah. And and, and we could see that. Like, Joel is starting to soften here. Like, we yeah. could see him kind of, you know, as whereas she was asking, Ellie is the type she's just going to ask a million questions whether you answer or not. Anyway, that's just her personality. And like, I love that thing where she's like, uh, like, I think it's in episode two and they're like, you ask a lot of questions. And she she wasn't ashamed of it. She's like, yes, I do. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, she's just like, that's who I am and I'm proud of it. And but like, the one thing Joel has consistently been is like, nope, nope, nope. And I'm not going to answer any of your questions. Like, uh, whereas now when she's like, we've got 25 hours, why don't you tell me about Tommy? And he, he did, he told her and he's kind of opened up you know there is what i liked is even at the start of the episode this is just a little thing if you watch it back um there's a little note where she starts reading the puns to him and he's pretending he's no selling it and going like no i don't care about your puns but then she kind of sets up a joke and he does turn his head and look at her and he does he pretends he doesn't want to know but he's like what's what's the you know what's the <laughs> you know what I mean? and he starts to engage more with the pun book as time goes on to the point we see him actively laugh for the first time that we've seen that since since sarah was around um so do we think that you know joel can be redeemed do you think that that's where it's going like there's almost like do you think there is going to be that balance bruiser where do you kind of sit on joel softening and ellie maybe getting a bit more psychopathic do you think that there's going to be a balancing act there yeah i think it's it's very hard for me to answer that and not spoil that in my head but i I do feel that's coming you know i think it's all part of the story i think i think ellie Ellie can't survive in this world unless she does grow a pair of balls, and which you're seeing her grow on, you know, on a, a fucking everyday basis, basically in the show. Uh, you know, she had. I think they were dexterized, by the way. I didn't see any fucking sorrow in her eyes after she saw. I thought she was fucking happy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think slowly but surely she has to become hardened, and. Joel is definitely 
understandably does not want to get close to anyone since he lost his daughter. But uh, I think he's slowly but surely kind of getting a small soft spot for her, yeah. you know. Yeah, she's chairing him and she's chairing us at the yeah. same time. Yeah, I think I, I think love, he's I love that joke. Was it the scare scarecrow joke? Oh yeah. Outstanding was, outstanding in his field, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he to it and the rollover and all. It was just like it was a, a cozy moment in a yeah. horrible yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Kev. The um yeah, just I think he's Joel probably I think felt bad because he, he scared her in the when they're going to sleep in the forest. By saying like there's 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 people, it, it's not it's not the the clickers or the runners we need to worry about. It's the people and what they might do to us. And I think he's scared of there to the point where he got up out of bed and just kept watch for the entire night. Yeah. I don't think he slept that night as well and was just out there with a gun, looking into the darkness of the forest for the entire night. And I think that's where the paternal thing of like, oh fuck, I've really <laughs> got to protect this kid. Yeah, um, really kind of kicked in, but I'm not Tim softening. I think maybe a little bit as well. Yeah, there was that interesting moment because I think Joel has this, uh, when we meet him uh, like 20 years later, Joel has this give a fuck attitude. You know, the first time we meet him, he's dumping a kid's corpse into like a fire. Um, He doesn't care about whether he lives or dies and, and like he can approach his life with that in mind. And he was going to sleep like he was trying to sleep. And then Ellie reminded him that there's danger and Ellie seemed a bit vulnerable and scared. And I think that's what made him get up. I don't think he mm. would have got up otherwise. I think he would have just went to sleep and not cared because he's like, what do I give a fuck? If I, if I don't wake up, I don't wake up. I'm in pain anyway. But then when she seemed scared and he had to be that protector that Bill reminded him that he is um, in the note last week and so on, then he that's what made him get up. And I found that interesting. Again, that's just my own perception of it. I don't think the show kind of tipped their head, head either way. But um, yeah, that, that's how I took it. Another kind of interesting choice that, that Mazin and Druckmann have made is they made Joel way more vulnerable than he was in the games. And I like that because like, you know, the shootout that he had with the guys... If Joel had been, if that had been the game, and we've we've all played that shootout, you know what I mean? And you, mm. you beat like 15, 20 guys, and that's not strange in the game. But if you see that in the show, you're like, this is bollocks, this isn't real, you know. They make the 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 battle scenes realistic while still maintaining that Joel's a badass, but also he is a 56-year-old man. He can't walk up flights of stairs, he can get the shit kicked out of him. Like every battle seems to take a piece out of him. And obviously, there I, I joked about it, but there's a contrast between Joel who in the game who has super hearing versus Joel who literally can't hear out of one ear. And later on in the episode, he gets stung by Henry and Sam, like when he falls, when he turns over in his sleep and accidentally sleeps on his, on his bad ear. Um, so he can't hear them kind of creep up on him with, despite the glass being there. What do we think of vulnerable Joel? What do we think of that side? And, and instead of kind of the invincible badass superhero almost that we got from, from the game, Bruiser, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's just, it's a realistic situation, right? And that's what the show is trying to do. Like, obviously, the game is fun. It's great crack. We're also probably not going to be able to craft a, you know, find fucking a bottle and a scissors and whatever the fuck else you found in every corner of every room. You know, that way, that shit isn't, it just isn't there. So, uh, yeah, they're just going down a realistic approach where, you know, you've got an aging man. Yeah, he's a bad motherfucker, but he's still an aging man. You know what I mean? Like fucking Danny Glover, a weapon here. Shit gets harder. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kev, your own thoughts on on vulnerable? Yeah, Joel? I think uh, just because it's there, there, there's there's differences in the in the game and like and then what a TV show would be. So like in the game, 
Ellie might be just following you around, hiding behind stuff with you while they're shooting. And in this, he in that scene, he made sure you there's a hole right there. Go hide in that hole and don't come out till till all this is done. And I think that's that's the kind of more vulnerable. I really have to protect this kid, and it, it made sense like as well that he was trying to protect her first and then take care of the guys then as well. Yeah. Um. But you gotta like think as well if he didn't sleep the night before. He drove God knows how many hours on no sleep, just drinking the coffee as well, and then gets ambushed and then <laughs> has to climb up what 45 flights of stairs then as well at mm. 54. Like, and he's he's just just completely battered at this stage as well. It's great. I think yeah. it's a really, really good characteristic for the TV show. Yeah, it really it adds it adds an element of peril. And obviously, look, we, again, I, I know Bruiser, you were saying it's tough to speak like without it, but again, I think they've thrown in enough changes now that they've at least I don't think they're gonna go too crazy, but like if you're a gamer after especially after episode three and how different they went with how that story was, I think there's enough there that we can convince ourselves that maybe we don't know, or maybe they will go something, you know what I mean? Like but that's my fucking problem. I yeah. don't want to have that. I want the yeah. story that's in the game. You get me? Don't fucking yeah. worry about the script, mate. The script's been written. The script is good. Don't fuck with it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> follow it, the it, fucking follow the sales pitch. Give me the sales pitch and I'll buy it. You know it, what I mean? Don't go off it. It's interesting, like, um, and and yeah, but like, there, there is like kind of an element where they kind of have to go off it. And let's talk about the the non playable characters now. We're gonna call them until we have a name or something to work with now. Uh, Kathleen is the leader. Perry, played by obviously the OG Tommy, is kind of her head honcho. Um, the two of them there, obviously, and and that that's not that's a new introduction to the game. Again, everything they've introduced now is is different i'm gonna be honest on this one of the things that and i'm someone who stayed with the walking dead until the bitter bitter end and look it got quite decent for the last few seasons again they kind of picked up the pace um after the world has kind of switched off but i'm still very something in the the this genre of show that i'm very kind of jaded on and i just don't have any time for anymore is the random group of humans, like, you know, where they just have a, a this is their, their, like in The Walking Dead, they always had a name where it's like the kingdom, the this, the that, the other. And it's just like, I don't care. It's like, what if humans are the real problem? And they're kind of going down that path with the non-playable characters now where I'm just like, I don't like, for me, I'm not hooked on them yet. I kind of see them as, it looks like, you know, we're heading towards seeing the next, we all know, I think what's coming when we saw the ground heaving. Yeah, I hope that what happens there just takes them out instantly and early enough in the episode. <laughs> I, I I wasn't that into them, and I, I I like with the amount of plot that we know they still have left, and we're, we're we don't have that much time left. It's only five episodes. There's a lot to get to. I'm okay if we just like they're dead within the first twenty minutes of next week. Or but are you guys different? Are, like Kev, are you kind of feeling? Are you intrigued by this, or how are you feeling towards non playables? It's just there's no backstory there towards them as well. And when she went in and was interrogating the doctor, and then they 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 found the kid couldn't be, couldn't be saved, and then just shot them. You're and shot the doctor. And you're like, it's a fucking doctor in the middle of an apocalypse. Like, what are you doing as a leader? <laughs> like, yeah, it's it was just a really bizarre, dumb decision. It was like, are you supposed to be like the portraying her as like this really evil person, or just completely just um out of your mindset on revenge then as well but i don't have any context for for why you're that annoyed really um or what henry did this this henry person they're looking for um so if you've no context on that yeah i don't really care about them all that much to be honest either it's 
I thought it was like one of the weaker part of the part of the of the episode was anything with them really. Even them storming the houses, I was like, do you do you know people that live in these houses that are definitely gonna be like yeah. they they've, they've betrayed the the cause? It was just random and bizarre. I don't know. It just didn't really work for me at all. There's yeah. it's just it's context though. So maybe next week they'll they'll clear a bit of that up and it'll be a better episode looking back on having got the context of season two or have our episode two because I feel like this is a two-parter mm. but uh yeah it's it's just it didn't work for me in 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 the narrative really Bruiser, how are you feel I know obviously you're probably happy to have OG Tommy back but uh the, the characters <laughs> um listen I right makes a lot of sense everything you're saying is correct and it does feel like filler yeah which it is but like the character like making NPCs just like, seem important seems like a bit of filler time but you know how the second game went. Yeah. And you know a certain amount of backlash for having no certain build. Mm-hmm. And I think now they're just trying to flesh out the world. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think they're trying to correct the mistake that was possibly made. Mm-hmm. And I think they're trying to go, if we slowly flesh here and there, everything is more believable. Mm. That okay. That's how we look at it. Okay. Okay. Well- I trying to flesh out a little bit more that they didn't do in the first game that they wish they'd done in the they, they by the time the second game came they had wished I reckon that they fleshed that out a bit more. Yeah. And I think the season that this the TV is just trying to make up for a few accidents. Okay. Okay, that's fair. Going. That's fair. Uh, it's kind of tough to talk about Henry and Sam. Uh they're, they're, what can we say without giving it away? You know what I mean? Like I will say one thing that I'm looking forward to with Henry and Sam and it isn't even to do with them and I do really like them as characters and where it goes and I think it's really interesting but there's one thing when I did the playthrough of the PS5 remastered version just kind of getting ready for this and with this TV show very much in mind and what I wanted to see I don't know if you remember there's a series of notes by someone called Ish and oh yeah yeah I was looking at that and basically like I, I, I won't get into it because again like whereas the TV show can kind of veer off and show you flashbacks and show you more. And that's where Bill and Frank came from. The only reason we learned about Frank was through notes that you found along the way, because in the game you're playing, so you have to stay with Joel and Ellie the whole time. So the backstory is fleshed out through finding different notes and artifacts and this and that. Ish, like you found a series of notes as you walk through the game. And like, basically they, they basically found, I won't get into what happens and stuff like that, but they found a hideout with a load of different children and stuff like that. And I was like, this would be an amazing, like that's almost like a side, a spin-off series of The Walking, or not The Walking Dead, The Last of Us, um, that I'd love to see fleshed out. I don't know if we have the time, because like I said, when I'm trying to map everything out that they still have to get to by the end of the game, there's not a lot of time left. But I don't know, is Renton, you guys are kind of hoping to see, again, while being conscious that we can't say too much about Henry and Sam without spoiling, because... Yeah, we we can only talk about like what what we want, but yeah, what what are your own guys' thoughts on having Henry and Sam here? Um, I I think maybe what you're alluding to, even with Ish, they might do something next week with it. I hope so. Yeah, because like where all that happens, I think might be underneath that crater. Ooh, ooh. Potentially, Ooh, we're really annoying people who haven't played the games. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> that something like that might happen, I think, potentially under there. 
or who knows maybe we're hyping them up maybe they're like who's yeah. this what's going on what is this oh my god and then like <laughs> next week when there's no ish they're just going to be like right but next week come back and we'll tell you what the story is if they don't get or, to they, it, or they can play the game Rick <laughs> yeah Rick, well, Jer, sorry keep, keep, I keep <laughs> calling fine. you your evil twins name <laughs> yeah that's fine he's not here he's gone out it's fine um, speaking of games we're just going to go through some of the easter eggs that we had here again there's more the opening stress the first 15 minutes was just pretty much word for word to part of the, uh, parts of the games the pun books is pure Ellie. Hank Williams, that exact song is 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 in the game as well. The gay porn mags, that whole scene, like even right up to bye bye dudes. The clip we had at the start of this, <laughs> um, that was all there as well. Why these pages stuck together, all iconic uh, lines from the game. Um, an interesting one is Brian begging for his mommy. Um, was a nod to in the Last of Us Part Two. You started to have whenever you killed a heavy they would beg and they would scream and they'd cry and they'd act you and they, they humanized them so that you were very conscious of what you were doing and you'd almost feel guilt. You know what I mean? So they that's what they're kind of. And also as well, Ellie moving stuff out of the way to let y'all in for doors. And even Joel, when he's kind of coming in with his shoulder, I'm like, that's in the game. Um, is there any other Easter eggs you guys picked up on the, the, or does that kind of cover? Okay. Um, yeah. I can't really remember anything else. Okay, good stuff. Well, look, guys, the next episode is available. Good news for you, uh, Bruiser. You'll have a few extra days to catch this one. It's available be due to the Super Bowl being on Sunday. It's available on Sky or Now TV from Friday night or Saturday morning at 2 a.m. So you can oh, stream it on. Yeah, yeah. So happy out. Before we go, I want to get to a question. Keith Hanley, our old pal, uh, writing in since the low blow the low blows days. Any old listeners will know him from doing the World Cups, uh, will be how you remember him. Uh, Keith Hanley has wrote in going, What's your favorite or least favorite changes from the game so far? And in a spoiler free way, what part are you hoping they don't change going forward? Love the show so far. My favorite addition has been the context of the start of episode one and two. Um, so favorite changes from the game, the show so far. Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I think it's easy for me. It's Bill and Frank. I'm like, it, I know it's it's a layup answer, but like for me, it was fleshing out uh, the daughter's uh, day that day and the creepy ass scene with the granny. That that's creepy a scene with the granny sticks with me. Like that's yeah. the type of shit that like it, if you're into horror or whatever, that was horrifying. You know yes. what I mean? Like that that was terrifying. So that that's to me. If I had seen that shit in the fucking game, I probably would have knocked the bleeding thing off. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, lads, I'm not going down this road. I'm out of here. You know? yeah. so, yeah. Love it. Love it. Kevin and Dad? No, that's that's a really good answer. Yeah, that might be one of mine as well. Even the, the chases all the way, the, the airplane blew up in the background and stuff. It was just a little bit more epic, I think, yeah. as well. They just they put a bit more epicness into that. So at uh, the, uh, the opening. Or what about Bomb? Actually, do like, you know? Yeah, yeah, I was gonna say the even the the interview, yeah, at the start was oh, yeah. just phenomenal. That was amazing. Um, and is there any, is there any part you're hoping it won't change going forward? Obviously, without spoilers. What was that? I missed that bruiser. Sorry, I thought you were about to say, uh, what would they change? And I know what I was going to shout at you. <laughs> careful, <laughs> careful. <laughs> I know what you're going to shout too. So does everyone who played the game. <laughs> um, um, can we just say David? Yeah. I And, and he, like David's in this, we know that. Yeah, I hope they stick fairly close to, to how that played out in the game. Yeah, yeah. Even though it's it's traumatic. But yeah, that's a good yeah. show. Um, the game. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. We're we're thing to say. I understand what you're saying, but like but everyone's gonna judge it when they see what. It. If 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 it, if they tell the story the same way, yeah. Like I'll, exp- I'll explain why it was my favorite part. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Like the lead up before David, like that is going to break everyone. Like there's going to yeah. be one, there's, there's one thing coming up and and, and it, they they really have to go for that. And I think they they will. It's one of the most affecting parts of the games because it, it breaks you as a player. So um, yeah, if they get that right, um, the thing that leads you into the David storyline, um, then yeah, that'd, that'd be absolutely perfect. Like, because if that's a, if that's a, a cliffhanger, then the the world is going to break <laughs> for yeah. a few days. I wouldn't be opposed to them maybe introducing a completely new, unique enemy as well, mm. specific for the TV show. Okay. Maybe some like I don't know, yeah, some 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 new form of of clicker or um I don't know, yeah, some other kind of evolution might be kind of cool. Interesting. Okay. Well, look, we all have it ahead of us. Uh, we're going to be back next week having the chats. Uh, great to have you back, Bruce. Always a pleasure, Kev. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Book, guys, have we got anything on in general or are we all Fuck good? Tommy. Fuck Tommy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I think at this stage, it's, at this stage, yeah, it's just going to be Fuck Tommy. So. <laughs> I'm in. Fuck it. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week, folks. Next week on the show, I'll try prize myself away from PS5 at Hogwarts Legacy to see Magic Mike's Last Dance, Women Talking, Somebody I Used to Know, Blue Jean, Two Leslie, and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Plus, we'll have another episode of The Last of Us to know they'll drool over again. In the meantime, if you haven't already, add us on socials at page180pod. Give us a recommendation to a friend, retweet us, spread the word, however you can until next time my name has been jerry leggett this has been page 180 and why are all these pages stuck together